Well, um, we know that the way things begin uh, can be very important. So, for example, if we're excited about a new series that's releasing on Amazon in the first episode, the plot line doesn't really grab us. That can be a disappointment. The way things begin in our uh, shows are important. Our English teachers taught us the same thing. How you start that paper is critical when it comes to grabbing the reader's attention. Uh, the beginning of your paper is important, and we know beginnings are important. If we're starting a new job, that first week can be uh, pretty central to how uh, the group is going to be thinking about you there when you're in a new in a new uh, position in your profession. Uh, beginnings are very important. A lot depends on them. And as we've been working through the beginning of John's gospel record, we know that John is aware of this principle as well. Uh, he knows beginnings are important. And we've seen this in a few different ways. One of the ways we saw this was actually in our study last week when uh, we had the very first recorded instance of someone believing in Jesus. Uh, when it comes to believing uh, in Jesus, John's first case study, as we saw, was focused on Nathaniel. Nathaniel was the beginning of uh, believing in Jesus in John's gospel. And Nathaniel, for the most part, he had a fairly uh, boring, we could even say, testimony as to the beginning of his trust in Christ. And that's important, as we saw, because as readers of John's gospel, uh, we're going to come across some folks who have uh, quite profound uh, stories of belief in Jesus. But just to make sure things are starting right for us, John doesn't begin by giving us a big and glamorous story, first of all. He starts with a fair, fairly average story of belief, uh, because beginnings are important, and they set a tone uh, for, for what's coming. Uh, so if we thought we had to have a, an extremely dramatic process of coming to Jesus with big miraculous experiences and all of these kinds of things, John helps make sure we have that set in the right category. Um, and, and so we keep thinking about the importance of beginnings today as we start in on chapter 2. And we do that because here we're given an account of the first sign that Jesus performed. Uh, if you remember from a while back uh, when we were introducing our studies to John, we talked about how there are seven signs in John's gospel, seven uh, being a number of completion and wholeness in Jewish thinking. So uh, John purposefully seems to be uh, including seven signs as a way to speak about a, a complete kind of revelation of who Jesus is and what it means to believe in him. And in our section today, we have the very first one. Uh, in fact, what we could say maybe a little bit more accurately is we have the beginning of the sign. Uh, so if you look down at verse 11, uh, where John gives us a little bit of an editorial comment there after this event has taken place, we read there that Jesus did the first of his signs. That word translated first is actually the Greek word that speaks more to, to beginnings or, or the head of something, uh, more than it does simply as one number among many. Uh, John purposefully is choosing a word that refers to, to the beginning, the head, the start of something. It's a matter of prominence and a set, if you like. Um, and so the language highlights the place of this sign in the context of other signs that are going to come. Uh, so, so more than just this, this sign being first among a series of signs that Jesus is going to perform, we have a beginning one. One is set in a primary place for our consideration. Uh, John is trying to communicate that to us, that it's featured prominently. And that actually helps us interpret the event that's here a little more particularly, because it's not just that this turning water into wine at a wedding was one of seven signs that are coming, uh, but it's actually that what's here in, in the beginning, what's here is purposefully placed out front in John's record as a matter of primary consideration for us. There's a reason it occupies the place in the narrative that it does. 
Of course, this doesn't mean that turning water into wine is the most exciting sign that Jesus performs. His, his resurrection, of course, is the most glorious sign of all in John's gospel. Uh, but, but knowing that John wants to start purposefully with this event does help us pay close attention to it. Because at first we might wonder, why do we start with this one? Why, why would we begin here? Why not start with demonic deliverance? That would be a really big way to begin. Or why not start with the, with the feeding of a starving crowd of people? That would be a really dramatic way to begin. Um, because, because while we're thinking about John here, we might have to say to him, you know, for your grade in English class for this composition, you need to start with something a little bit more exciting. This isn't maybe grabbing us as much as some of those other stories would grab us as we're starting to read about the account of Jesus' signs. Um, so while what's here is obviously amazing, it's, it's not the most astounding of the miracles that Jesus performs. I mean, in a few chapters, he's going to call a man who's been dead in the tomb to walk out, and he's going to walk out. That's, that's a big deal. Right? But John knows what he's doing. And, and, and we see that while we might not have chosen this ourselves in terms of composition, obviously John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has put this at the beginning in order to orient our attention toward the miracles that Jesus works. And he does this in, in a way that's different than we find in the other Gospels. And part of his positioning, part of what he's doing, helps us, helps us grasp that a little bit more clearly. So if we just think about John in relationship to the other Gospel records, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those Gospel writers regularly use a Greek word to describe Jesus' miracles that, that basically means power, works of power, the word miracle. It's a reference to Jesus' mighty displays of power. So when we read the other Gospels, for example, as Jesus performs mighty deeds, uh, a major point in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is that here we have the inbreaking power of God's kingdom coming with God's king and affecting the new life that, that, is, that is promised in God's kingdom through God's king. That's what's going on in a main way in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Look at the restoration of health that comes in God's kingdom. Look at the deliverance from evil and demons. Look at even the resurrection from the dead. Look at the life Jesus brings by His power. So in the other Gospels, the miracles are intended to show the power of the King of the kingdom. Look at what He can do. But things are a little bit different in John. Of course, the display of Jesus' life-giving power holds true in, in all the signs that Jesus does in John. Some of them uh, even appear in the other Gospels, and they're called miracles. But, but John purposefully chooses a different word to speak of Jesus' exercise of power because John's, if we can call it redemptive, literary intention is a little bit different in his gospel. So instead of the word miracles, John actually chooses this word signs. And he picks a loaded word that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to speak of God's work in creation. For example, that's referred to as a, as, as a sign of God's power. He chooses a word that's used to refer to the exodus, Israel's deliverance from the exodus. That, that word is used to describe that in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So John's picking a particular word, and, and, and John's not only bringing that out from an Old Testament context so that we make some connections, but, but he's doing things a bit different in that he wants us to see what Jesus can do and see that activity not merely as this historical inbreaking into our world, but he wants us to see it as symbolic, as giving us a picture of something more. Signs, uh, the, 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 the signs that Jesus performs are certainly powerful works historically displayed in John's gospel, 
But along with that, we can say carefully, but we can say there's, there's almost a metaphorical intention running parallel to these displays of power. So there's, there's purposeful symbolism in the way John reports Jesus' works here. And that's why we even have it in the English word, don't we? Signs. Signs signify something beyond themselves. They're, they're pointers. Um, so, for example, in our passage today, why take the time to mention that the jars with water in, that, in them that, that Jesus turns into wine, why take the time to make sure that there are six jars set there for Jewish purification? Why, why give us that detail? Why bother with that? Well, John gives us that detail because there's going to be some symbolism in that. It's pointing to something. Why tell us that all this took place on the third day? Well, there's intentional symbolism in that kind of thing. So as one scholar put it, these signs are not displays of power so much as directional pointers. And so where are they pointing? Well, ultimately, they're pointing to John's main purpose in writing. And we've been reciting this on a regular basis, thinking about how John's main purpose for his readers is that we would come to believe that Jesus is the Christ and so on. But when he starts that thesis statement, that purpose statement in chapter 20, listen to what he includes there. John says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written, these signs that John has recorded, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you can have life in his name. So, so the truth recorded here in these events is obviously historical truth. Um, Jesus' displays of power took place in time, space, history. John witnessed it and is now reporting them. But they're not just historical truth. It's historical truth that's meant to be this, this big, bright, flashing pointer directing our attention ultimately to the glories of Christ so that we'll believe. So these signs function in a unique way in John's gospel. We, we need them in order to see something of the glory that's present in, in, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And there's a unique perspective that John draws out as he says, these things happen, but these things are actually directing us to something bigger, to something better, to the, as we'll see in our text today, to the glories of Jesus. So we think about that as we come to this, and that helps set a framework for the kinds of things that we run across as we engage in this, in this passage of reading. We're not just merely reading this and saying, wow, it's really powerful what Jesus has done. We're reading this and we're asking, what is the large significance that John is intending for us by his spirit-inspired writing that John is intending for us to take away from this? And so... Uh, with, with all that said, just by way of introduction, let, let's look at this passage today. What we'll do as we go through is we'll notice the immediate historical situation that's present here. That's important, and we need to think through that. But then as we work through it, we'll also intentionally try to pick up the sign, the plain signs that are here uh, that give some deep significance to what, to what we're being told. So here we have the beginning sign. We can call it that, water into wine at this wedding in Canaan. And we'll start in verses 1 to 3, where we think about those verses under the heading, impending disgrace. Impending disgrace. Um, weddings are, are really, really wonderful, happy, celebratory events. I, I like going to weddings. I like officiating at weddings. Uh, they're, they're always occasions, almost always occasions, it depends on the stress level, but they're almost always occasions of great joy. People are happy. It is one of the highlight uh, celebratory events that we can participate in as friends and family and these kinds of things. 
Um, however, as, as a pastor, I have found that weddings do also bring with them some anxiety for me. And uh, there, there are four of them, the four F's of wedding anxiety. The first F is family. The second F is friends. The third F is food. And the final F is facility. If something's going to go wrong, it will go wrong in the categories of the four Fs. Family gets grouchy. Friends don't do what they're supposed to do. Food is wrong. Something goes wrong with the food or the facility is messed up. The woman's bathroom doesn't work, something like that. The four Fs of pastoral wedding anxiety. That's what, that's what those are. And as we get into this text, we actually see that it's the third F that's presented the problem. It's the food category that has become a problem here. And that here we have a wedding and Jesus' mom is going to come to him and tell him the, wedding, the, the wine is gone. We don't have enough wine. The wine there's not wine anymore. Um, so if you look at the text, we see that this scene opens. Obviously, a wedding celebration is well underway because the wine's gone, has been drunk. So, so in the context of, of this particular social setting, in this particular day, a wedding was the biggest celebration of, of a person's life, of a couple's life. Uh, the party would oftentimes last even seven full days. And a wedding was so central and meaningful in this first century Jewish context that actually the, the religious leaders of the day would relax religious and ceremonial requirements for those who were participating in the wedding so they could continue to participate in the wedding and maybe not engage in the normal ceremonial religious life that would be taking place during the days that the, that the party was going. So in the context of a first century Jewish wedding, it, it was a, as huge a celebration as it could be, which it should be. It's a very big deal. And as we start in on this account, we're told that Jesus' mother was at the wedding, and so was Jesus. His disciples are there too, so it's a, it's a local wedding where clearly there's some family connection for Jesus and his mom, and, and maybe even his, his disciples who, who have started to follow him at this time, some of them. Um, but the bad news comes in verse 3 where, where Jesus' mom tells him that they don't have any wine. So uh, not only do we know that the celebration has been going for a while, but we also know that things are about to get uh, extremely embarrassing for the groom and his family. Uh, in our culture, oftentimes it's the bride's family who bears the fuller weight of the cost of a wedding celebration. That we, We're used to that culturally for us. In this social setting, though, things were opposite, and the bridegroom and his family uh, were responsible for wedding festivities. And to run out of wine would have been an extraordinary social embarrassment. And, and it wouldn't have just been a social embarrassment, but there's actually a record uh, that a bridegroom could be sued if he failed to provide for his wedding celebration. So, so it was pointed out that a groom could lose up to actually half the gifts given to him and, and his wife, and even more of his own material provisions if he didn't care for the guests he'd invited. Of course, you have the question in your mind, who's going to sue the bridegroom, right? But we've all had those guests, right? So, so, so we see here this situation, it's one of, of quickly approaching social embarrassment on the one hand for the groom and his family, but it's not just social embarrassment as we understand the context of the day. It could even lead to some level of financial disaster for him. And, and, and we, need, uh, we need this background just, just as we start to have a sense of what's going on here. And as this, as this goes, we can immediately feel our own sense of angst building. It's, it's the third F problem. Right? The, the, the wedding angst is starting to occur. They don't have the, the, the wine that they need. We can feel the blood pressure going up. However, it is interesting to note how John begins this account here. John starts, even in the Greek, it's, it's prominent in the Greek. John starts by telling us that it's the third day. You see that in verse 1. 
It's the third day. Now, John's been actually counting days since we've, we're in about the middle of chapter 1. He's been counting days for us going through. It was the next day, the next day, the fourth hour on that day, that kind of thing. Um, so so, so this, is, this is the third day from the last day John told us about. And, and obviously, we read that, and it's kind of an awkward way to keep telling us about days, isn't it? So we got up to about day four in the, in the narrative so far, and then he says the third day. So, so this is the third day from, I think you got us to the fourth day, John. My goodness, you're making us do a lot of math here. Uh, but, but, but this actually makes us sit up and take notice just in the fact John highlights this. He doesn't just say a few days later or you know, something more simple like that. He says it was the third day. And when that kind of awkward literary thing happens, we remind ourselves that John is not telling us things accidentally. And, and so if we slow down and just, and just think on this for a moment, there's something that's here for us. Remember, if we're just reading through this, we've got some anxiety building up for this whole wedding situation at the moment. But, but if we're reading John for the first time, maybe having a deep sense of the Old Testament fresh in our minds, when we read this opening line about, about shame and disgrace that's potentially looming over this wedding, we actually wouldn't be too worried at this point. Uh, the, the, the angst would be up a little bit high. We'd be sucked into the story wondering, you know, how in the world this is going to be okay. But we wouldn't be fundamentally worried because of how John starts this episode with on the third day. Because all through the Old Testament, which would have been the Bible for John's first readers, all through the Old Testament, when it seems like devastation is present, we see God acting for his people on the third day. It's a repeated theme. So Abraham sees the spot where Isaac will ultimately be, be preserved from death on the third day, the text says. God tells Moses that he's going to come down on Sinai, appearing to the people of Israel on the third day. Jonah's rescued from the belly of the fish. We know that one on the third day. In 2 Kings 20, King Hezekiah will be up from his sickness on the third day. In Esther chapter 5, Esther affects her plan to save the Jewish people from Haman's murder plot by going into the king on the third day. Right? There's time and time and time again where we read this. The third day is the day of rescue from destruction so often in the biblical storyline. Obviously, we think forward to the resurrection of Christ himself on the third day. And here we read about a situation of impending disaster and shame, but we read it with a, with a little bit of a smile, because what is it? Well, this is all happening on the third day. Jesus, the one who's come to reveal the grace and truth of God to us, he's present in the midst of a situation of impending shame and wedding disaster. But instead of this episode only starting with worry, John starts us out with this little sideline. This is an episode that's a sign. Remember, there's symbolism here. It's a day when social disaster looms, but it's the third day. And even as we think about this, the social shame maybe of, of one's own wedding disaster, well, that would be a bad thing, no doubt. When we think in terms of what this points to, we recognize the symbolic significance of a picture that social disgrace gives to us, doesn't it? Isn't this our, our basic condition so often as humanity? We feel this. We know the presence of the threat of, of, of shame and being disgraced all too well. We feel guilt over actions done and we think, oh, if those people, if they knew what I was really like, if, they, if that was ever discovered, if, 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 if those kinds of things were known, my goodness, it would be so embarrassing for me. We know the weight of guilt and shame that can be in our hearts, just even socially. Don't we have that so pervasive in our culture right now? We live in a shame-based culture right now. 
Or if you say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing, what's going to happen? Well, the whole world of social media guilt is going to collapse on your poor head. We live with shame constantly. And of course, that's not even the, the biggest function of shame in our hearts. The biggest function of shame is that we've been made by a creator who's gracious and good and given us all things. And what have we done? We've decided to turn our back on him. It's the shame and guilt of sin that we're all uh, very much under the weight of as humanity. And we can wonder at times, depending our, our, on our situation, on the things that we can face, we can wonder, is disrepute, is humiliation going to be it for me? That can come to us in particular in personal ways. That can come to us even in, as we reflect in theological ways. We feel the weight of our burden of sin against God. You find yourself going off in a direction where you know, I, I know this is contrary to Christ and I'm wandering down this dark path. And we wander down and then there it all settles in on our heads. The guilt, the shame. We think, oh, what have we done? Am I done now? But we know for those in Christ, we remind ourselves. In that sense, we are always living in the third day with Jesus. This Jesus who we trust in, he came, as John tells us, from the, from the realities of eternity, outside time and space. This is the one who's come and entered into this particular wedding situation that was no doubt becoming very socially awkward very quickly. But, but that's not the extent of our shame that Jesus has come and identified with. We know he's been humiliated in our place to the utmost in his public death on the cross. And he did that so that our ultimate shame that we carry because of our sin against a good and gracious God, that will not stand and condemn us in our lives. We'll be completely relieved from that. That this Jesus, he enters our shame and brings relief. So much that he speaks about us as being new creations. He speaks, Paul speaks about us as being new creations in Christ. We're being new. All of the guilt and shame and that historical stuff is gone because Jesus has been present for us in our context of shame. He comes and relieves those kinds of things. He's not running away here when the wine's gone. He engages in the situation and brings life, and that's exactly what he does for us. He doesn't leave those humiliations to be the master over our lives, but he becomes Lord over our lives, delivering us, cleansing our conscience, bringing us into his family of those who have the same need of grace, and he renews us. So, so just as we'll see him do here, he brings abounding life. We see that. But right from the very beginning, we have to recognize, because we know John's intention, this is a sign. And the setting of the sign is a context of shame. But it's not shame marked by hopelessness. It's shame marked by third day life. This is who Jesus is for us, the one who brings life. And so if we, if we have that in our minds, then we keep going here as we move from this impending disgrace then to a reorientation of relationship. We'll call it that. This is really verses 3 to 5. Uh, a reorientation of relationship. Um, we have this interaction between Jesus and his mother. In fact, I'll reread verses 3 to 5 for us here. Uh, verse 3, when the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What does that have to do with you and me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Um, now, to just read over that interaction quickly, it strikes us as kind of troubling. Um, it almost seems like Jesus is being rude to his mom. It seems like a strange exchange. And while there is a level of tension that's here, Rather than rudeness being present, uh, what's here is actually, uh, again, redemptively reorienting, if we can put it that way. Jesus has some instructional intention here as he, as he interacts with his mom. Uh, so so let's, let's think this out. 
to get it. Back, back in verse 3, Jesus' mother has told them that they've run out of wine. Um, now, now, part of what helps bring clarity here is that, is that we need not think that Jesus' mother was lobbying Jesus to involve himself in a miraculous kind of way with regard to the wine shortage. So, so remember, this is the first, this will be, it hasn't happened yet, this will be the first recorded miracle of Jesus. He doesn't have even all of his 12 disciples gathered together yet. We don't read about all of them till chapter 6 later on. So, so here in terms of Jesus' public ministry, he's been introduced by John the Baptist, uh, but, but he's not begun working miracles and exercising the full expression of his public ministry just yet. So while Mary is aware of the significance of her son, there's actually no reason to think she was coming to him asking for a great big miracle. She didn't come saying, you know, hey, hey we're out of wine. Let's see you do some of that amazing tricky stuff I know you can do. That's not, that's not what she's doing. Um, but we can make sense of her request and that as we put the pieces of Jesus' family life together, probably by this time Joseph, so Mary's husband and, and Jesus' adopted dad, however you want to put that physically, um, while Jesus is referred to in the Gospels as, as Jesus the carpenter's son at times, as time goes on we actually see Jesus uh, being then referred to just as Jesus the carpenter. The son part drops off. We have that in, Matthew 6, or in Mark 6, uh, for example. So at this point, Joseph has probably died, and as the oldest son in the home, which Jesus is, the burden of caring for his family, even, even carrying on the family trade of carpentry, right, that would have fallen to him. So Jesus is in a role of responsibility in his earthly immediate family, probably because Joseph has died, and no doubt, Jesus would have been, uh, of course, a good carpenter, but he would have been a very resourceful person too. After all, he is the wisest man who ever walked the earth. And his mom would have known that Jesus was savvy. And so in this context, we're not surprised Mary comes to him simply because she would have come to rely on Jesus and found him to be a very resourceful, responsible person. We need not think Mary's asking for a big miracle here. More realistically, Mary's doing what moms do from time to time with their son. She's asking him to step in and help solve a problem. And Jesus responds in an interesting way. So first he responds by using Hebrew idiom that we actually find throughout the Old Testament, literally it's, it's translated here as something like, what is this to me and you? Or what is this between me and you? Mary tells Jesus about the wine, and he responds basically by saying, what, what, what does this thing you're talking about have to do with, with you and I? It's a bit of an abrupt expression. Um, in, in a sense, there's a certain distance that it creates. Scholars speak to that. Interestingly, the only other time it's used, and it's used multiple times in the Gospels, the only other time we run across this expression is demons responding to Jesus. Remember that in different places? What have you to do with us is usually how it's translated, right? So it shows up in that. So it's a distancing kind of comment, right? So we have that. And then we also combine that with the fact he refers to his mother as woman. Now, for us, that, that can sound fairly rude. We would never speak to our moms that way. Uh, but contextually, it's actually not as rude a way to speak as we might think. We don't really have an English equivalent for the, 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 the social equivalent for this, but, but it is respectful. It even carries a measure of affection. In fact, part of the way we know this is that later at the cross, when Jesus says to John what he says as he's taking care of his mom, you remember how he says to John, behold your mother, and then what does he say to Mary? He says, woman, behold your son. So, so it's a term that's not devoid of affection. It's a term that carries warmth with it. Um, but it's not mother either. It's noteworthy that Mary's referred to as Jesus' mother three times by John the narrator in our passage, but never by Jesus in our passage. 
And, that, and that's a clue for us as to what's going on. So, so, so Mary comes and tells Jesus the wine's gone. Jesus speaks a, a little bit curtly maybe to her. What does this have to do between me and you? And then he, he doesn't call her mother. He calls her woman. And then he says, my hour has not yet come. Now, now for Mary, that statement, the hour has not yet come, the significance of that statement wouldn't have been immediately clear to her. But, but this is actually language that Jesus is going to begin using a number of times in his ministry as the gospel goes on. In fact, just as a matter of interest, Jesus actually, uh, John records Jesus saying this seven times in his gospel. Um, and, and it's an expression that ultimately refers to Jesus' climactic display of glory in the shame of the cross. That's, that's Jesus' hour. The hour for Jesus' true glory to be revealed, his obedience is, is, is his obedience all the way to the cross. And here he's saying, it's not quite time for my full glory to be displayed. But, but why is Jesus saying that? Mary's not asking for that. Why speak this way? Well, Jesus knows what he's about to do. He's about to perform a sign that will, as the text says in verse 11, begin to reveal his glory. But before he does that, he's taking care to make sure his mother is rightly oriented toward him relationally because while he remains her son and will care for her up to even his final moments on the cross she must start having her own view of him change jesus is not ultimately the carpenter in a primary kind of way concerned with the immediate affairs of his immediate earthly family jesus is ultimately the christ and as mary relates to him she needs to relate to him in a way that rightly reflects this truth so his questions are pedagogically directed they're instructionally inspired on his part what does this have to do with me woman instead of mother it's not my hour all of these things would begin to draw mary out we know jesus is the is the quintessential teacher draw mary out in the way that she's thinking about who he is and what this means all before jesus is going to engage in a way that becomes public ministry it's all it's all coming now and we actually see this in in, in the gospels and other places you remember in luke's gospel Jesus, even as, as a boy, is having to reorient his parents toward his mission, toward his purpose. Mary knows who Jesus is. The angel came and announced that she trusted in the Lord, all of these things. But there's reorientation that has to take place in that relationship. So Jesus is in the temple. His parents are worried because he's lost, they, or so they think. And, and he has to say to them, what, what, did, what did you think I would be doing? Don't, don't you know I have to be about my father's business? Later on, Jesus is engaged in public ministry in Mark chapter 3. And, and, and the people are around him and somebody comes and says, hey, your mom and your brothers are, are wanting to see you. They're out there. And what does Jesus say? He doesn't say, okay, they get special treatment. Make sure to bring them right up front. No, he says, who are my mother and my brothers? They're the ones who do the will of God. So Jesus is having to engage in a kind of writing of that relationship for his own family. In a few times, we see that in the gospel. Mary has to work through the fact that things are changing as Jesus enters into public ministry especially, she and, and Jesus' siblings are, are pressed in these kinds of ways. Uh, he's, he's making sure that, that she's oriented to him properly relationally. She needs to grow in faith. He's her son, but he's also come as her savior most of all. And that means that Jesus' prerogative, as we'll see, is sourced in his obedience to God the Father, not in the demands of his earthly mother. So there's relationship instruction that's going on here in the midst of this kind of tense situation around the, the uh, running out of wine at the wedding. And Mary, you notice this, Mary, instead of being offended, she actually responds in faith. 
And that's how we need to read this response. She doesn't say to Jesus, please make sure you do what I want. Instead, in verse 5, she turns to the servants and says, do what he tells you. It's actually the subjunctive mood there in Greek, which means that she's expecting something to happen. She's expecting Jesus to, to say something. Do what he tells you. It's interesting, the confidence that's there for Mary, even as she's navigating this strain in interaction, one that, one that would have felt distancing to some degree. But what is her response? Well, she's trusting Jesus still. Not, not do what I say, but do what he tells you. It, it is quite the response. She's trusting. And, and so there's something here for us to see just in terms of this whole interaction. In a context of, of what we can call impending disgrace, Jesus works to reorient his mother's relationship to him before he brings the relief that he is going to bring to her. It's meant to be significant. And again, this is, this is all part of an episode that's a pointer. It's meant to be significant in terms of its use as a symbol, as a sign of how Jesus ultimately works, the glory of who Jesus really is. So we need to think this out. We, we can face things that seem like they will bring significant and impending trouble. We can face things that we feel shouldn't be happening to us. We can face things that we feel we don't deserve to have happening to us. We can face things that seem extremely troubling to us in our lives. And it is so critical to our own process of maturing. I'm preaching this to my heart as I'm preaching this to you. It is so critical in our own process of maturing, Jared, that our trust in Jesus is formed by knowing that Jesus' first order of business is not to fix the problem in my life, but it is to address how I'm trusting in Him in the midst of that problem. That is His first order of business. He's calling to us from out of our circumstances and He's asking, not what would you like me to do for you, but He's asking, and how exactly are you relating to me in this? What does this particular situation have to do with me and you? Have you ever considered this is the way the Lord still works in our lives? In the context of impending difficulty, Jesus' first order of business is not to make stuff better. It's to draw us out in a more proper relationship with Him. Before the wine problem is a priority, Mary's relationship to Jesus is the priority. What does this have to do with me and you? And then this is so important for us to consider. We can say things like, like, I'm going through this, Lord. Why don't you just fix it? And from his revealed word, we know his response. In fact, Jason just preached about this. We know his response to the situation is to say, first priority is not getting you out of the muck and the mire in this particular situation. First priority is let's work out what it looks like to be trusting in me properly. It's helpful to place the the impending difficulties we face in this context. Our first priority is not, Jesus, you're powerful. Go, deal with this. Would you please just take care of it? Get me out of it, get me through it, get me past it, get me around it, whatever. No, our first priority is not to appeal to Jesus as a kind of domesticated pet genie in a bottle. Our first order of business is to say, Lord, I'm facing something that might even bring me some significant shame publicly. And I need to know you more. I need you to increase my trust in you in the midst of this because I'm facing this and it's hard, but you're the Lord of hard hard places. You're the Lord of public shame. And I need to learn who you are and trust in you with greater clarity as I go through this. Could that be the first thing you teach me? That is a hard prayer to pray with, with, with a strong heart. But that's why we pray those prayers with weak heart. Lord, I know what I need. 
And I feel weak in asking for it because what I really want to ask for is immediately, immediate relief. Right now, may it all be done. Right? But I know what I must ask for. What I need out of this most of all is that you would increase my faith in you, that you would increase my belief in you, that you would help me come out in a greater and greater trust in the fact that you are the Christ who, in whom all glory resides and you are the one who cares for me. I need to know you. And that's what Jesus is working for Mary here. You need to relate to me differently, he says. And she responds by trusting. Don't do what I say, do what he says. How transformative is that just in our dialogue with the Lord. Don't do what I say, do what you would desire to do. Not my will, but your will be done. Before I plead for the fixes, build my faith. So, so we have this situation of, of impending disgrace, and then we have this reorientation of relationship before relief is going to come. And then finally, we have this abundant provision. This is verses uh, 6 to 11, abundant provision. We'll do this quickly. But verse 6, we're told that there are these six stone water jars for Jewish purification on the site at the wedding. Right? Uh, the religious leaders required people to ceremonial, ceremonially wash their hands over the course of sharing festival meals, which would mean they would then need to hold a lot of water. They'd pour it over your hands. That's how they did it. And the, these jars naturally would then need to hold a lot of water, as verse 6 tells us. And, and Jesus directs the servants to fill the jars. In verse 7, they do this. Then he tells the servants to draw some out and take it to the head waiter. Uh, very interesting right there. Just as a side note, John uses the Greek word for drawing water from a well, not drawing water from an urn or from a, from a carafe like this, which is just interesting. So draw, there's, there's, there's more there, right? Uh, so, so draw that out. They do that. They take it to the head waiter who tastes the water, which was now wine, John tells us, almost parenthetically. Oh, by the way, it did change to wine. Uh, so, so he takes this to the head waiter. He tries it. Head waiter calls the groom, gives the groom a hard time for saving the best wine until the end. You know, obviously, in the course of a party, as people drink more, the less quality wine comes out towards the end. But the head waiter says to the groom, you saved the best until the end. So not only is the celebration saved, but the enjoyment level has actually been increased. The best wine saved for last. So Jesus makes this amazing provision, turns the water into wine. And in so doing, he saves the groom extraordinary embarrassment and even financial crisis. He saves the groom from being in big trouble with his new wife. That's an exegetical note there, isn't it? Thank God what he saves us from doing stuff that would get us in trouble, right? You just make that point. Uh, but, but Jesus does this miracle, and, and as it all wraps up in the way it's reported, it, there's almost a sense of, of anticlimactic finality to this, isn't there? We, we don't really know anything about what happened, except one minute it's the water, the next minute the head waiter's giving it a solid 100 weight, weight rating, and that's it. It's just, it's just amazing wine seems like we're missing the big details of the miraculous creation of the best wine the world's ever tasted. Except that for John, remember, the big deal is not just the power of the miracle, although that's glorious, of course. For John's gospel, the big thing is the glory of Christ that's put on display, drawing his disciples out in belief in him. Don't look at the wine, look at Jesus, John is telling us, which is verse 11, isn't it? This is the main thing. John enters in with his editorial comment, Jesus did this. The first or the beginning of his signs in Cana of Galilee, he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. You see, the point is not immediately the power. The point is the direction that the sign is pointing. 
So, so as, we, as we put things all together, this is telling us glorious truth about Jesus, truth that draws us out in belief, and, and, and we put this all together in, in recognizing the symbolic significance of this. We could spend a whole other sermon on this, but, but I just want to put this here, and you can think this out more for yourself. But, but how, does all this thing fit to, how does all this fit together? Well, we just start with the pieces. On the third day, remember, life comes on the third day. There's going to be significance here. On the third day, Jesus provides abundantly for us in our impending shame. Day of life, Jesus provides abundantly for us in our impending shame, doing away with the old, incomplete content of the, of the vessels, the old vessels, the old way, the old way of purification. You notice there's just six jars there. We know John likes numbers. Six is incomplete. It's just off perfection. Right? Seven is perfect, six is incomplete. So there's that incompletion of the, the old way of purification. Jesus does away with the content of that old way and fills it with this wine of continuing celebration, proving to be what? The ultimate bridegroom. He's taking responsibility for the celebration joy of that wedding and doing what the bridegroom is supposed to do. Jesus proves to be the ultimate bridegroom, which we get to John 3, and that's exactly what John the Baptist is going to be saying about Jesus. I'm just a friend, he's the groom. You need to be looking at him. You see, the very beginning sign of John's gospel is pointing actually to the very climactic end of redemption history. The first sign Jesus performs is on parallel with the last, in a sense, sign that Jesus will do upon his return. We, we think about this from, from the context of places like Revelation 19 and the marriage supper of the Lamb. What do we finally look forward to? We look forward to the return of Jesus. He gathers his church in as his bride, as his people, to a feast where he provides for us abundantly. We rejoice in the celebration of salvation, uh, culminating there in the presence of Christ. The church as the bride drinks the wine of eternal gladness and all of these kinds of things. It's a glorious thing that's coming, and it's a sign here to that glorious end. And then maybe just to make that point, I want to read this for you from, from Isaiah the prophet. He's speaking about that climactic redemption, and we'll finish with this. This is Isaiah 25. Here are the parallels to our account. On this mountain, the Mount of Salvation, on this mountain the Lord of armies will prepare for all the peoples a feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage wine. On this mountain he will swallow up the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. When he has swallowed up death, once and for all, the Lord will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace, remove his people's shame from the whole earth for the Lord has spoken. So, so there's a final day likened to a final feast with the best wine where our disgrace is removed forever through Christ. And this sign points in that direction. This is what Jesus is ultimately going to do. And we get a glimpse of that glory from a story like this. John gives us that pointer. Jesus is the better bridegroom. And he is going to be the one who not only provides for us sufficiently now, but ultimately provides for us eternally and abundantly in the glories of a new creation of resurrection life. So, my goodness, there's so much here. But we can just ask ourselves, how, how have we been relating to Christ lately? How have we been relating to Christ? Is a genie who needs to come out of his bottle and just get us out of trouble spots? Right? Or have we been relating to Christ as the bridegroom of his people, a people that he himself will purify as, as we trust in him? He's the one who carries our shame. He's the one who renews our lives with good things. He's the one who procures the promise of better wine still to come. We can just reflect on how we're thinking about Jesus. Speaking of that final celebration, 
One commentator, Alexander McLaren, from an earlier generation, he, he makes this comment. I'll just read it to you and then we'll pray. He says, Jesus Christ keeps the best till the last. His gifts become sweeter every day. No time can destroy them. The end is better in this course than the beginning. And when life is over and we pass into the heavens, the word will come to our lips with surprise and with thankfulness. Thou hast kept the good wine until now. Let's pray. So, Lord Jesus, would you draw us out in trust uh, through your word? We're thankful that in your word you speak to us. By the ministry of the Holy Spirit, you come to our hearts and you draw us out in belief and trust and renewal and conviction and a compulsion to believe more. And we pray you would do that work in our hearts today. Uh, lift us up and hold us up by your word of truth. We trust in you as the one who will return. We look forward to that day. And so we say, come Lord Jesus. Amen.